Please do join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, right after the book of Proverbs, right before the book of the Song of Solomon. As we turn to God's Word, let's go to Him once again in prayer and ask for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have been pleased to meet with Your gathered people. And Father, we are in great need of illumination of Your Word. Father, we need Your Spirit to give us understanding of what Your Word means. We need Your Spirit to give us a ability to put your word into practice. Oh, Father, be pleased now to open our eyes to see your truth and beauty, open our ears to hear the message you have for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not easy to admit when you struggle. But I think when you do admit you struggle, you find yourself in good company. And I have struggled to get started in this series. I have struggled mightily to understand, and I'm sure I will struggle mightily to apply this portion of God's Word. My goodness, it's been even a struggle to come up with a title A title for this series, A Life of Sanity in a World of Vanity. Now, where did this title come from? Um, Amongst the many reference books I've been using to help me grow in my understanding of Ecclesiastes, one um, title in particular grabbed my attention, and the title of the book is Making Sanity Out of Vanity, Christian Realism in the Book of Ecclesiastes. And so... Uh, I will admit, and I will talk to the author later this week and let him know I did borrow part of his uh, title, but a life of sanity in a world of vanity. Now, I hope um, that this title will help me and, and hopefully all of us stay anchored in our calling to live by faith in Jesus Christ and not by sight. In a fallen world, a a world, as we know, full of sin and misery, full of frustration and futility, full of confusion and chaos. I believe and I hope that this will help us to find, maintain and strengthen an eternal perspective rather than just a temporal perspective on life. To learn how the there and then of heaven should indeed and can indeed influence the here and now of life on earth. Now in my study thus far, I'm I'm coming to the conclusion that, that Ecclesiastes could be considered in some ways, I think, an expanded commentary on Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. If you can turn back to Proverbs 3, you'll hear this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. 
It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Again, you can see that maybe this entire book, all 12 chapters, 222 verses, are kind of like an extended commentary on those Proverbs. Now, the title of the book, uh, Ecclesiastes, is taken from the first sentence. Uh, in Hebrew, you'll see the word koheleth, and the koheleth is the one who addresses the gathered assembly. And the English title is taken uh, from the Septuagint, the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, and then after that into the Latin Vulgate. And Ecclesiastes means the assembly speaker, uh, the preacher. And it's related, of course, to the Greek word in which we get the church, the ecclesia, the ecclesiastical, as it were. Now, let's answer a few basic questions about the book. Uh, well, what, what type of writing is this? Well, it's wisdom literature. It's, it's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. It's, it's concerned with imparting wisdom and knowledge to the people of God and teaching them to fear the Lord. Now, who is the author? Well, although it's not directly attributed to Solomon, like you would see at the beginning of Proverbs, the beginning of Song of Solomon, uh, most likely in, 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 that it's written by um, Solomon. Now, more about that in a little bit, but when was it written? Well, as early as the 10th century B.C. and as late in its final form as the 6th century B.C. We just can't quite be absolutely certain or dogmatic. Now, why was it written? Now, we'll see this week after week, but it's, it's there to present the necessity of fearing God in a fallen and frequently confusing and frustrating world. Now, how? How does it speak? Well, you'll notice a meandering account of a journey that the author makes. You'll, you'll see also cycles of various dead ends. And you'll see embedded within Ecclesiastes proverbs and you'll see poetry. Now this is a challenging book to understand and apply. Why? Uh, I don't know about you all, but I've neglected Ecclesiastes. I've skipped over Ecclesiastes. Uh, I was talking to some people over the past couple of weeks and they heard that we're going to be doing a series in Ecclesiastes and they're like, oh, pessimistic. Uh, life is pessimistic enough. Uh, now I've got to hear it on a Sunday. Um, I hope that perspective will change. Um, at least it's changing for me. Now, why is it hard to understand and apply? Well, it's structure. It's structure in and of itself is hard to discern. It shifts between topics. Uh, there's a, a negative section followed by a positive section, as we'll see, back and forth. And, it, and at times, Ecclesiastes seems contradictory, not only to other parts of the Bible, but also to itself. And we'll see that as we work our way through it. Um, at first glance, um, as we will see, it does not seem, excuse me, it does seem to be somewhat overly pessimistic, especially when you get to verse 2 and you stop at verse 2. However, I believe with a bit more reflection, uh, the pessimism will give way. It won't be replaced with some kind of naive optimism, but rather it will be replaced by Christian realism. 
It's a challenging book to understand. It's a challenging book to apply. It's, it's an important book. It's absolutely important. We are not to neglect it. We are not to ignore it, but we are to turn to it and pay attention to it. Well, why? Well, interestingly, Herman Melville, the 19th century American author, novelist of Moby Dick, for instance, he said of Ecclesiastes, it's the truest of all books. The truest of all books. Now, why would Herman Melville say that? Well, as I think we will see, it, it is utterly realistic. It calls it like it sees it. It observes the world as it is, and it's unafraid to state it as it is. Again, Melville, the truest of all books. But we, of course, don't need Herman Melville to direct our attention to this portion of God's Word. We have what God's Word says about itself as we heard from 2 Timothy, it is God-breathed. Ecclesiastes is God-breathed. It's profitable. It's going to be a joy to be together with you to discover its profitability, its usefulness, its relevance. As the psalmist would say about the word of the Lord, it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Do you, do you think of Ecclesiastes as something that's going to help us in our Christian journey? Indeed, we will see Ecclesiastes, even maybe as early as today, that is sharp as a double-edged sword, able to penetrate right to the very core of our being. Indeed, as Paul writes in Ephesians, the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. So what's Ecclesiastes going to do for us? It's going to help us observe the world around us. It will help us ask the right questions because uh, not only do we need right answers, we really need to ask the right questions. And as we work our way through Ecclesiastes, we'll see that some of our questions, even the good and right questions, just don't get answered to our satisfaction. This book will help us gain and maintain a, an eternal perspective, a Godward perspective. And so as we work our way uh, together on the Lord's Day, as you read it individually at home during the week, uh, it's going to be important to read slowly, to read contemplatively, reflectively, prayerfully. After all, it's wisdom literature. Before we begin, let's remind ourselves that we have to view Ecclesiastes through the lens of the New Testament because what we have before us is not just the Hebrew Scriptures, it's not just the, the New Testament Scriptures, it's all of God's Word and we can't get to Ecclesiastes, although it's, it'll be important to see it as it were standing on its own in its context, we really can't. We won't do justice to it. We won't even be able to rightly interpret it apart from seeing it through the lens of the New Testament. Remember in John, right before the high priestly prayer, the night that Jesus was betrayed, his last words of instruction, his last words of instruction to his disciples was this. 
in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus chose to end his instruction with. Jesus says, in the world, you're going to have trouble. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And we'll spend some time exploring that in just a moment. But in me, Jesus says, there'll be peace. There'll be sanity, as it were. You see, Ecclesiastes will help us take heart, take courage, be of good cheer because it'll direct us to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who makes us sane and the one who keeps us sane in a world that sometimes feels like it's gone crazy. Now, in this introductory message, we're going to introduce and make a brief overview of the book by considering two narrative bookends that keep all of the sections of the book together, standing up straight and not falling off the shelf, so to speak. So let's look at the prologue, the beginning, how it starts, the introduction, bookend number one, the first two verses. Now, I believe what's happening here in the bookend at the beginning and the bookend at the end is that the narrator is setting the stage. The narrator may be Solomon. The narrator may be someone other than Solomon that took what Solomon wrote and kind of had an introduction and a conclusion, but it's all one in the same. But here's the narrator opening up the book And he introduces the preacher. Let's read verses 1 and 2. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, there are really many good reasons to believe that the preacher is Solomon, of course, son of David, king in Jerusalem. There's just overwhelming evidence that, that it's Solomon. But there's also some evidence, mainly linguistics, that could see these, some words coming in that yeah, are in centuries after Solomon. But for our purposes, Solomon is the author. And as the author, Solomon the preacher, he, he writes as a wise man who looks back over his years of restless wandering with a view toward encouraging his readers then and now to avoid the dead ends that wasted his time that he pursued. Oftentimes in the scriptures, Paul would say something like, follow me as I follow Christ. Solomon here is saying, don't follow me. But you'll notice, therefore, there is a negative and a positive. Uh, The negative we will see is when we talk about life under the sun, and the positive will be kind of the Godward perspective. Uh, It doesn't say it directly, but it's like, like life over the sun. Verse 2, vanity of vanities. Um, 
Most translations, the one I'm using says vanity. Um, the New International Version uses meaningless. There are a couple of translations that say um, futility, but King James, New American Standard, New King James, um, all vanity. Here, here it is five times in one verse, over 30 times in the book. Now, we got to actually drill down for a moment, not do a word study, so to speak, but make some comments on this Hebrew word, Havel. Even in the translation I'm using, the English Standard Version, this Hebrew word, Havel, is translated in Scripture as vanity, breath, idols, vain, worthless, false, nothing, empty, vapor. That's a lot of English words coming out of one Hebrew word. And so context is king. Context is going to help us understand. And literally, when you look at this word in its original use, it's vapor mist. In other words, the preacher is saying that everything is a mist, a vapor, a puff of wind, a bit of smoke, in other words, he's going to say life is short, life is elusive, life is repetitive. And we'll see as we work our way through that the preacher unpacks the concept of Hevel with many illustrations. He'll talk about endless repetition. He'll talk about that that repetition is deeply unsatisfying. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing will be remembered after we're dead and gone. There's nothing permanent. And there he goes on to say, and there's nothing you can do to fix it. This book is not really about nihilism, cynicism, or purposelessness. It's about life under the sun, on earth, in a sinful and fallen world, a life that's tedious, that's transient and temporary. But it will also provide God's perspective as well, uh, life as it were over the sun. So today we're looking at the bookends, and, and that's the first bookend. Now, between the bookends, um, we're going to go on an adventure to follow the preacher's quest to find meaning and satisfaction in life. And his conclusion is that apart from God, life is futile. And we'll see in this journey cycles, a series of re recollections where the preacher will say, I have seen and after a bit of reflection, he will say, I perceived. In other words, he's saying, I've seen with my eyes, this is what it's like under the sun, but then he's perceived. He's been given, as it were, wisdom. He's been given faith to see God's perspective of life, as it were, over the sun. Now, to be sure, the beginning that we just looked at appears to be quite pessimistic, a downer. If anybody's given to depression, I mean, this adds fuel, doesn't it? Especially the translation meaningless. I mean, do you want to read further after meaningless? I mean, vanity is hard enough. However, 
in order to have an accurate understanding of this beginning, this prologue, this first bookend, as well as the entire book, we've now got to go to the epilogue, to the ending. That's where the narrator finishes. And so turn with me to chapter 12. Chapter 12, the epilogue, the ending, how it finishes the conclusion. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, beginning in verse 8 to the end of the book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Here in this epilogue, uh, the narrator or the preacher concludes by reminding us about his message throughout the book. Here he provides a mini commentary on the entire book. He's going to explain the how and why uh, the wise preacher did what he did with his words and explain what, his, what the intended effect of those words on us is. In verse 8, it's a restatement of the initial claim. In verses 9 and 10, there's the affirmation of the wisdom of the preacher. In verses 11 and 12, the reader is summoned to pay careful attention and then finally, the overall message is summarized in verses 13 through 14. Look at verse 8. He proclaims once again, he sums it up, he's repeating, he's reminding, he's reaffirming, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And so what we'll see as we work our way through Ecclesiastes is between uh, chapter 1 verse 2 and chapter 12 verse 8 is going to be the unfolding of this mist, this vapor, this temporary transient life that disappoints over and over and over again. So there's the proclamation. But I want to make and draw attention to some sad irony here. Many, as I said earlier, many find this book to be gloomy, pessimistic, unable to make sense of it, when it was actually written to bring us pleasure. Bring us pleasure? Is that what you think of when you think of Ecclesiastes? Look again at verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Let's be honest, answer in your mind. Did you ever think of Ecclesiastes as 
a collection of delightful words. Words that are truthful and words that are beautiful. It's going to be a great joy to discover together these words of delight. And so here in this epilogue, in this ending, is a reminder of pleasure. But it's also words, words that are painful. Look what we read in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now what are goads? We don't use that word too often. Goads are that instrument employed by herd drivers in the ancient world to keep animals on a straight path. And then there's nails. And, and, and yes, nails may have a purpose, but when they go through a person, they wound. They hurt You could even die being wounded by nails. And yet, they are sharp words from a loving shepherd. I think most of your translations probably capitalize the shepherd, reflecting that they're the words of God, the shepherd, Jesus, the shepherd. Pleasure and pain. You see, the pleasure of the Bible, it's... It's one of the ways we know our creator is when we realize that the words that he speaks to us are pleasurable. And another way that we know our creator is when we realize that some of the words he speaks to us are painful and sober us. Indeed, the pleasure of the Bible and the pain of the Bible test our attitude. God's word will cheer us. God's word will humble us. Words of delight, words of truth, words that are like goads, words that are like nails. So as we approach Ecclesiastes, let's step back and ask ourselves this question. When was the last time you approached the Bible with childlike wonder, expecting to learn, expecting to grow, expecting to know more of God? I've always been encouraged by generally these older pastors and preachers and theologians from the United Kingdom. I I think of John Stott, J.I. Packer, among others, Even in their old age, there's a joy and a delight of coming to God's word, finding new treasures, finding pleasure in God's word. Do you approach God's word with childlike wonder, eager expectation, eager for God to speak to you through his word by his spirit? Now, on the other hand, when was the last time you came to God's word and submitted to it and acted on it even though you may not like it? You see, we come to God's word. It may cheer us. 
It may humble us. We may come and learn new things about God and we may come and learn new things about us. And it's painful and hard. So he proclaims once again, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He's, he's summarizing that, that there are going to be words of pleasure in Ecclesiastes and words of pain. And he steps back and he helps us get perspective as well. We see in verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Everything's been said, everything's been written. Here's the conclusion, here's the sum. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, why, why should we delight in the Bible as well as allow it to wound us? To change our perspective, to shift our point of view. Fear God and keep his commandments. I think probably down the road we'll, we'll have to sing trust and obey, right? Fear God, trust him, love him, obey him. Put into practice what he reveals. But after the perspective, we see that we're called to prepare. Look at verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. As we'll see as we work our way through Ecclesiastes, uh, ultimately, there is one answer. God will put it all right. God will make everything right. I would imagine all of us have bad dreams. We might call it a nightmare. And I've got two kind of main types of bad dreams. One is when I can't get away, right? I think we've all probably had those kind of dreams. You can't get away. You're trying to run, but you can't run. But the other type of bad dream is you're caught unprepared. You're caught unprepared. All of a sudden, the, the music stops. You're looking for a seat. And there is no seat. All of a sudden, you're called to account and you just hadn't given it a lot of thought. You're unprepared. You see, Ecclesiastes, in ending like this, it's driving us to know that we've got to be prepared to meet him. And one author, in looking at all of Ecclesiastes, says, in one sense, Ecclesiastes is, is, is saying, we've got to learn to live by preparing to die. And he's actually got a title, I think it's called Living Life Backwards. Because if you get to this end, to this conclusion, to this epilogue, then it's going to help us as we work our way through. We're going to need to live life backwards, knowing that God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
Now our journey through Ecclesiastes will be a rough ride at times. And so I think keeping these bookends in place will provide some stability for the bookshelf, for a life of sanity in a world of vanity. Let's uh, conclude with just a couple of uh, references from the New Testament on your life. Later in James, and we use James for our corporate intercessory prayer, later in James in chapter 4, James asked this question, what is your life? And here's his answer. For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Guess what? It's the same word. I mean, the equivalent word, this mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That's the vanity. That's the vapor. That's the mist. That's the smoke. It's temporary, transient, tedious. So what is your life? Scripture can rightly say it's a mist. We're here one day and gone tomorrow. We're a mere breath. But here's another way that the New Testament, God's Word, addresses our life. And we find that in Colossians 1 where Paul writes and says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Did you see that? On the human earthly level, our life is a mist of vapor. In the eternal realm, God's realm, no, for those who trust in Jesus, our life is hidden with Christ in God. And how more direct can Paul say it other than when Christ, who is your life? You know, Jesus in John 10 didn't just say, I have come that you would have life. Jesus is saying that I am your life. And you see, as we wrap up and as we land here, we've got to see Ecclesiastes through the completed scriptures, through the person and work of Jesus. And as we work our way through Ecclesiastes, we will see life observed, that that Rich people die and their wealth goes to other people. People work hard and it's taken away from them. We will see injustice and this just doesn't make sense. And I think it'll draw attention to our Savior Jesus Christ because if there was anyone who deserved to be blessed, who deserved to have life work out well for him, to to not, as it were, head down a dead end, It was Jesus, right? But instead of being blessed, what do we know? Jesus was cursed. For us, in our place, on our behalf, he was cursed so that we who trust in him would be blessed. My friends, the good news of Ecclesiastes is it's going to help us know our Savior and love our Savior because he's the one that gives us a life 
of sanity in this world of vanity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word and we ask uh, that you would indeed open our eyes to see not just the truth, but the beauty and enable us, Father, to come to your word and find words of pleasure, but also know that we will come and find words of pain. So, Father, whether they are painful words or pleasurable words, we know that you will use them to help us to become more like Jesus. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, and we thank you for Jesus who is our life, who is the wisdom of God. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Respond.